Hello everyone and welcome to our Casting Crew Q&A. My name is Lena and today I have for you an interview with AJ, the writer behind Crown of Thorns. Um, last time we talked to you, AJ, you told us a bit about you and how you got to write for Good Omens and how you became part of the fandom, what led you to write Crown of Thorns, etc. And today, to commemorate the creation of Earth according to the Good Omens book, we wanted to have you back on to tell us a bit more about how it all started. So, hello. Welcome to the interviews. Hi, thanks again. Um, it's always a pleasure. <laughs> so to get started, my first question is, what was the first spark for the fanfic? The way that I put it last time probably was, was very rambling. Um, so I'll try to keep it brief, more brief this time. Uh, I was at a couple of Q&As from Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett. They were held a week apart in um, the autumn of 2005. Harry's signing was first, Neil's was second. Um, there were a few of us on the live journal community called Laura Tadfield who um, managed to get tickets to, this, to both of these events and we planned to go together to both of them. And there were people in the community um, who had become fascinated with a blog post from Neil earlier in 2005 in which he'd mentioned he went out to eat with Terry um, and that they were talking about what they thought Crowley and Aziraphale were doing like right that moment, like then in real time. And Neil kind of made a glancing reference to Terry saying something about, oh, on the South Downs, really. And so we we had this one little odd fragment of information that that they had decided on in their conversation, but we knew nothing else than that. And so um, the people who knew that about two or three of us, it was actually a group of three of us, three of us went to one signing, four of us went to another, the second one. Um, they said, look, during the Q&As, um, maybe you can poke them about this. And so I said, I will do my best to get noticed during both Q&As and I will answer each, I will, sorry, I will ask each author the same question. So um, I asked Terry the question, I did get called on, I asked Terry the question, he gave this super rambling answer just generally about him and, and Neil in the process of writing Good Omens. Uh, but he didn't actually answer the question, which was, what did you decide Carly and Israel are doing on the South Downs? I mean, he ended up talking even a bit about, you know, the sequel that never happened. Um, so then a week later, we went to Neil's event and it was held in a space about, I mean, it had, you know, there's a very big difference between a small room um, at a college library and a huge church, which is uh, where Neil's event took place. And I was thinking there's probably no way that I'm gonna make it under the wire. Um, but I think I was maybe the second to last question that they took. And so I asked it to Neil. He started by giving a long rambling answer, very similar to Terry's about the um, collaboration. And then he kind of paused and he said, uh, no, what we decided was what Carlin and Zerafel are doing in the South Downs is sharing the cottage. And the the reaction was pretty audible. So that pretty much told us exactly how many people were there, but, you know, considered themselves part of the fandom or it meant means much, so much to a lot of people. And obviously um, we've gone on to have corroboration of that years later, which is wonderful. Uh, but I moved to the UK about two or three weeks 
after those events to start a graduate program and I landed there on October 1st and I felt very alone and, and a bit afraid and anxious but um, I had received you know a prompt from a friend asking me and I don't know if I included this piece of information the last time I had received a thick prompt from a friend asking me you know if you were to write something it was the last time you could ever write about them what would it look like? You know, what would what would you want to be the very last glimpse you ever had? And so I still was thinking very much about the signings um, and the information and how people were still just, you know, oh, over the moon um, on on what Laura Tadfield on on Live Journal. So I wrote um, a better place, which became the first chapter of COT. Which I think it's ironic that something I wrote just meant to be this little snapshot of if I could only have one last glimpse at them I would want to know you know that's where they were and that they were happy but <laughs> the, the way things work for me is that uh you know I can never something that I think is small and going to stay self-contained uh very rarely does and so the next installment ended up being a story that I wrote for um in fact, the second part of it, there was a gap of, of several years, and the, the second part of it was um, a story I wrote for Good Omens Exchange, where it was really the first time somebody asked for a story um, set on the South Downs, like more than that little one that I had written. And so I was like, okay, um, I can do more with that. I can, I'm not going to treat it like a little what if goodbye or, you know, like a little test situation. And that's, um, it's a complicated answer every time, I guess. Um, but several, several things uh, came into the, the making of it. Right. And so when you start to plan it more in depth, because the story has several arcs, but it also has like a, a bigger arc of this is sort of it a does. beginning. And then it, here is where we leave them with the idea that it continues, but the story finishes. So when did you start planning that arc more in depth? So once I had a better place and the walls, the wings got in the mouse, mm-hmm. um, I started, I think, there were a couple of smaller ficlets that I had written maybe a couple of years before I actually wrote the walls, the wings got in the mouse. You know, I think one was high the water, high the walls um, that I realized felt very much like they were in the same universe. So I pulled those in. Mm-hmm. Um, I decided that I was going to start having some installments be little flashbacks because I am very a very big one for parallelism, parallel structure and narrative. I like using flashbacks. Uh, one of one of my other really uh, well known, I guess you could say, pieces in fandom for Pacific Rim anthology um, uses a storytelling device very much like this, where I'm I'm constantly interspersing flashbacks to the past with what's going on in the present and all of those flashbacks, I started to pick them pretty carefully, realizing that I needed them to be relevant to the present timeline events. Right. And so at least at least after the walls, the wings got in the mouse, I had this awareness that I was going to have to start planning more carefully. In fact, even using those flashbacks and shorter thicklets as interludes if I if I wanted it to seem, you know, not not so aimless because it really was kind of um, accidental the, the way that it started to become a series. 
And I would say the big, so I kind of drifted along like that for a couple of years. Like I'm, I'm thinking that a couple of smaller ficlets were written about 2007, 2008. The Walls of the Mouse, I think was 2010. And then I slotted those, those shorter ficlets into place, a couple of them retroactively between, well, not between the first two stories, but in there. Um, and 2012, the summer, um, for some, well, there were a lot of reasons actually that summer, but I got some of the the first ideas that would, would become the really big middle stretch stories where the long-term plot really begins to kick in. So we're talking, um, trying to remember what the, the really, the first one was where I realized, you know, what to do when the clock just stops. Mm-hmm. I thought this is starting to feel like there's there's got to be more than just the kind of lighthearted or, um, you know, not structured, but not so formally or not with such great consequence. But it was um, when I started focusing more on Adam and Sophia and Mandy, actually that trio of characters, and of course Pippa was kind of always there because she holds it all together for me is Pippa's presence. Um, her, just her sort of, because she's the first um, original character that I created for that universe and she was the first one to come in and um, really make sure that Carly and Aziraphale were starting to have a life outside their own cottage walls. But Adam and Sophia being one of Anathema's daughters, an original character I created, and and Mandy, um, a local who works in a cafe that becomes sort of Curly and Aziraphale's regular server there. Uh, these three young people became the the main drivers of the longer term plot and the the longer arc and the longer stories. And of course, then I started to bring in. Um, you know, other players from the book, Hoster and Ligger, um, Shadwell and Tracy, um, a pair of my original characters that I had actually built for a completely different um, thick universe in like, it had to have been late 2004, early 2005. My take on two of the Archangels, Raphael and Uriel, um, they, I, did, I decided they'd actually operate very well in the context of this. So 2012 is when it, a lot of things collided both out like externally for me in in real life and uh with within the bounds of the narrative and it just took off from there you know I was I was plotting very carefully from there on out until I realized I had a kind of crossroads with the ending I actually originally there was a different a slightly different way that I thought it was going to end but as things go that take many years to write I was reacting not just to internal narrative decisions, but but also my external circumstances and, and things I was learning from what I was going through. And I am glad I'm glad that I um, that I worked on the ending for a long time and thought about it for a long time before actually um, deciding that I was going to do it because there was one point where I maybe wanted this to be something I worked on. For the rest of my life, if possible, it was kind of a neat idea to me to have something that would go on for years. But then, uh, the television becoming television adaptation becoming an actual reality, and my health starting to cl- decline. Um, but at the time, I didn't actually know why. In the spring of 2019, I didn't really find out until the fall. 
those two circumstances, the show adaptation and um, my health not being very good, I decided that it was important for me to bring it to a definitive end so that uh, new people coming into the fandom, you know, would have something finished to read. And also so that I it could remain pretty separate from any influence that, that the show might have. So no, that was not really, these answers are not really short this time. I do apologize. I do apologize. <laughs> it's all right. It's all right. No problem. So what I'm hearing is that you plotted it extensively. So I guess that answers my next question a little. But in general, would you say that you are a plotter for most of your stories? Or do you think you're more of a pantser? When I was a younger writer, I mean, I'm in my 30s now. Uh, when I first started playing with prose, and that was a bit late for me in comparison to when I started playing with poetry and other very structured short forms uh, is where I started writing. But um, like, let's call it from maybe my like, like mid-teens into like early 20s with, with fiction, when I would try to write it, I would very much fly along. But mm -hmm. when I started writing more seriously in fandom, I became a plotter. I, tra I trained myself how to be a plotter. And so at this point, um, I'm very heavily, uh, I plan things. I plan things as extensively as possible. I allow room for error, you know, in my, in my own outlines. Sometimes I'll recognize that something I set down uh, when I get to the halfway point of writing doesn't necessarily work anymore. Uh, like the ending, the final story of COT, for instance, or even just within a story, I try to outline extensively enough to give myself a full structure, so I so I know where I'm going. But I'll leave it. I'll leave enough, just enough vagueness, um, that I can be adaptable. And and I've had recently, I feel like a lot of my more recent work in a couple of my more active fandoms. I think Gotham would be the best example. I outline extensively and plan. I mean, I, I I plan my writing more tightly than ever, actually. But there have been a few stories recently where um, I've just realized, you know, about half or three quarters of the way through, it's like, oh, this element has to change or this has to happen somewhere else. Or I thought I could use this character's point of view for this particular scene, but actually I can't for it to work. It has to be from the other the other person's perspective. Um, yeah, uh, that's yeah. That's really all I can say about that. Mm -hmm. Right. And so you, well, you've told us just now how you started to flesh out more of the original characters, like Mandy and Sophia. But how do you come up with them? Do they come up during planning, or do you start writing a mm -hmm. part of the story and then you go, "Oh, this character like would do really well. We need." a server to always talk to Aziraphale and Crowley, and then she became Mandy. So Mandy first, Mandy and Pippa both first appeared in the second story of the series, The Wolves, mm -hmm. The Wainscot, and The Mouse. I knew at that point, so I'll use these two original characters as my example because they're the earliest ones. I knew that I was going to need a couple of locals to help mm -hmm. Crowley and Aziraphale, you know, be drawn out of out of their little little world, which is the two of them that they spend most of their time in, let's face it. Um, 
So I had them going to a cafe to waste time after looking at the cottage, um, you know, while they were waiting to see if their their offer was going to be accepted. And of course, I wanted as much detail as I could have in that little setting. So I thought, okay, I'm going to, you know, find a young local to be serving them and who I hope maybe will become if I do anything more with this, which at that point I was thinking, oh gosh, this is going to go somewhere. So I thought she needs to have a name and a personality, even if I don't call her by name in that story. I didn't know her name. Um, and, and, and when I start thinking about, and I need a, I need a character who's like this and to function, function like this, she actually was pretty easy to conceptualize. And then obviously I also needed another local who was more of a, you know, a middle-aged to older figure who'd lived in the area quite a long time and, and wasn't going anywhere and would become one of those, not, not the bad kind of busybody, but yeah, kind of a busybody. And uh, Pippa in particular was based on um, one of my British friend's moms who I'd met a few times uh, and who left such an impression on me personality-wise uh, when I think about Pippa and see a lot of my friend's mom in her. So she was uh, even easier. You know, her personalities about half what I remember from my interactions with my friend's mom and the other half, obviously, um, what she became when I built her as I wrote her. And then with, you know, um, let's say a little later on, like what to do when the clock just stops is when we first have um, Newt's and Anathema's daughters show up. I don't know why I always thought of it as there being three of them and the younger ones being twins, but they, I'd had that idea in my head actually for a much longer time. I just hadn't written stories about them having kids yet. Mm -hmm. So, uh, the number of children was definitely very thick for me and that they were all daughters was important to me. In fact, when I create original characters for them to be women and gender non-conforming, like in the case of um, Raphael and even Uriel to an extent, even um, back then when I was not out of all of my closets, it was extremely important for me for most of my OCs to be women and gender non-conforming. So that played into it definitely that so many of the original players in this series are, you know, I suppose break all kinds of, you know, gender and societal, you know, the, just norms being broken is um, mm -hmm. a big thing for me in, in my original characters and, and in representation. So, I don't know, and names are easy for me. I feel like I don't struggle with naming characters. I take into account to a degree, locality, to a degree, real people I know that have those names, to a degree, other characters maybe that I've read in other works of fiction I admire, you know, mm -hmm. that maybe every once in a while a name will stay with me. So I'm trying to think if there's, if there's anything else I can say about character creation, but those roles kind of hold up for for most of for most of the universes and most of the fandoms I write in, I think about 
character function first and then from there the blanks the blanks fill in pretty easily awesome so you told us just now that you started realizing around 2005 i think you said that it was becoming like a really uh huge universe of its own not just a couple of one shots that you were stringing together um do you remember at what at what point of the story was this at well no so um 2005 was when the first story was written. 2007 and eight were a couple of shorter cyclists that I decided to pull into it. But when it really, really started to get that momentum was 2010 was okay. um, Wolverine's Got in the Mouse. And that's when the first big shot of momentum turned sorry. up. And then, sorry, no, it's fine. Um, and then 2012 with some of those, you know, um, I just think of them as the big stories that happen in the middle of the series is when those started to appear. Uh, like everything from, well, everything where you have Adam and Sophia in play, honestly, that's, they were just the troublemakers for me with plot. Um, those were, yeah, 2000, like 2010 to 2012 is the critical window for like really big momentum. Right, right, right. Yeah, sorry, uh, missed missed the date. So, what was the reception at the time? Did you did you already have many readers before uh, COT, or did it help you boost you as a fandom creator? When I first read the book in November two thousand and four, and went poking on LiveJournal and found the Lord Hadfield community, Good Omens was a very young fandom. I think some of the earliest pieces of fic that had been written, and at that point, there were not very many we're talking you could count on both hands. Uh, had it been written maybe 2003, I think was the earliest evidence of fic that I could find. So 2003, 2004, the, the centralized online presence was all on that live journal community called Lower Tadfield. And mm -hmm. so late, late 2004, I kind of plop in there trying to figure out what's going on, you know, who's who, what, stories exist because I wanted to write so badly just I was there was going to be no way of getting away from that impulse um and so I post started posting that my very first story in the fandom which is not part of COT it's the one called The Last Temptation of Crowley and the like two follow-ups I think it's like a little trilogy mm -hmm. or it, it feels like a trilogy but I think it has more chapters than that That got a lot of attention. Uh, from the first thing I started posting, readers started following my work, and I'm very lucky. I think it's that there'd been it had been maybe a bit quiet since those initial very few stories cropped up circa like a year or two before then. Mm -hmm. So it was easy at that point in time to follow all of the writers in the fandom because there was maybe a core handful of us that were writing, you know, again, this was like a point in time where you could count a lot of things on both hands or maybe a couple of sets of hands. Uh, so people were hungry for stories. I could tell it was like a right place at the right time kind of deal. And so I picked up a pretty decent following even with my pre-COT stories. Mm -hmm. And so when I wrote A Better Place, that got a lot of attention. That particular story, I've been lucky in the attention I was getting, but A Better Place saw a bump. And then people, I 
was pretty well established at that point. I would say that I was, you know, writing mostly shorter stories in the couple of years leading up to um, The Walls of the Wind's Got in the Mouse. And The Walls of the Wind's Got in the Mouse, if I was not well known before, The Walls of the Wind's Got in the Mouse just did it. Like that was it. That was like the no, like the no chance of being like a non-entity in the fandom at that point in time, <laughs> I think. Uh, is the the way that I remember it. And so uh, let's say that uh, that would make 2010 the point where I know that my my work was well-liked and well-received and popular before that. But 2010 forward, um, I could not really look anywhere at Reckless without seeing my work on them. And that's a wonderful feeling, Uh, you know, just mention or messages or, I mean, that, my fandom life got really busy, like 2010 and on. Um, so yeah. yeah, I mean, I, did, I was I was doing well, and then COT did give me a jump, and the people that I have readers that followed it through to the end that are some of the very first people I met on Live Journal when I first came into the fandom. In fact, it's a very significant number. Mm-hmm. of people that stayed with me and read you know followed it and didn't uh, all my thanks to them for not giving up hope the times where the series had maybe a year gap between right. installments because that did happen a couple of times even like you know I had a couple of gaps of a year I had some gaps of three four five six months uh that I didn't lose the readership and you know it, it was somewhere in there that I, you know, I was posting everything on LiveJournal up to a certain point. But 2012 into 2013, I decided to move all of my work onto AO3. I was a bit of, I transferred a bit late, I guess, to AO3, which did maybe hurt some of my, uh, at least it hurt some of my AO3 staff in the beginning. You know, people were definitely like some of the newer people in the fandom who were reading only on AO3 maybe didn't know about what fic existed on LJ, which was a lot of fic. But I did um, in the middle there, right when I was really, really ramping up into COT and those like middle of the line stories with so many OCs in play finally, is exactly when I moved everything on to AO3. So that undoubtedly helped as well I think because putting things on AO3 exposed my work to an audience that it didn't have on LiveJournal and it was a good mm-hmm. audience on LiveJournal to begin with. Right and do you think or well I guess a better question is had you already started to plot your stories more or was the success of COT what pushed you to you know start plotting it more for your audience? generally by then started being more of a plotter because mm-hmm. I th- and, and the thing that you have like that's important to know during all this time I was still writing in other fandoms too besides Good Omens you know I was writing Hot Fuzz fic for a good lot of that time I was writing um you know Pacific Rim fic for a good long part of that time I had to be a plotter I mean especially when right. I became a, a multi-fandom writer and a very active multi-fandom writer, I, I had no choice but to be a plotter or I would have been sunk. Right, so it was already a thing that you were doing. Yes. Um, so you told us last time that your favorite character was Uriel. 
do you remember exactly when you first introduced her and why you decided to introduce her to COT? She first shows up, and she may have been briefly, Raphael and Muriel may have been briefly mentioned before the Beach Botanist Survival Guide, but the Beach Botanist Survival Guide is when they first truly appear, and you so rarely have Muriel on screen without Raphael on screen as well. Also, mm -hmm. if I think about the averages, across the, the entirety of the series, Uriel in the later stories is more likely to be on screen alone than Raphael, but like he's almost never far behind. Those two are just, I don't know if I could call them as bad as Rosencrantz and Guildenstern when it comes to having a, you know, an iconic duo that's just always together and causing trouble, but they are. Um, she did really just an on-screen presence making a difference to the plot her first appearance in cot is in the beach botanist survival guide but then there's the clause where i had created her prior to that in about 2002 2003 before i even ever read good omens she showed up at the tail end of a long series i wrote in a different fandom um, called book of hours I wrote it for a tiny, tiny fandom at the time, and it is still tiny. There's a film called Toy Soldiers, um, in which like a very young Will Wheaton and a very young Sean Astin kind of got some of their film work start. And there was just a tiny group of us on LiveJournal that really loved this film. And uh, there's a situation at the end of this series, Book of Hours, that I wrote. There's, it's kind of a ghost story. Uh, kind of metaphysical. There's a lot, a lot going on in it, and it's longer than I think it's longer than COT in and of itself, like approaching 400,000 words. That series. Uh, she, I needed. Um, I have a character who's Catholic, and I very much needed a function from an archangel that was somewhere between, you know. What between death and passing to whatever's beyond that, you know, someone is stuck. And so this is where Uriel's function, for me, really, I started researching different connotations for Uriel in both, you know, um, Jewish theology, Christian theology, uh, Islamic theology. And what I saw, and I can't even remember which tradition I saw this in, it was so long ago I did this reading, that Uriel has a function sometimes that's called dominion over the souls of men. And I thought, well, once souls pass on, they're kind of out of all dominion except gods or higher powers. So if an archangel has dominion over the souls of men, it must be the souls that are stuck, that are you know, un unresolved. So that was my personal interpretation of that dominion over the souls of men. And so Uriel kind of, I created her at the very end of the series where a character who is dead has to make a choice. And it's a really, it's an understated theme, but it's a very uncanny theme as well. She's not, she's not the reassuring presence that you would think she would need to be because obviously then when I go on to use her in the Good Omens universe, Azrael, Death, 
is dominion over the ones that are definitively going somewhere. And so when I brought her into my Good Omens universe, she was brought first into A Crown of Stars, which is a little AU that I wrote before Crown of Thorns. And actually, the title of Crown of Stars had influence on people starting to call COT, COT. But I brought her and then Raphael, by extension, into this other little this little AU and it's a second it's the the only time I ever wrote a full-scale second apocalypse like that heaven and hell try again uh I decided that having two archangels operating on earth like there were two in heaven made sense there was a kind of balance to that you know there's these rogue agents in Aziraphale and Crowley but I would think that heaven would want to still have somebody down here maybe that's doing you know that are doing things a little more highly organized, except that's not really how how things panned out for them with Raphael and Uriel, as we all know, not in either story, not in Crown of Stars and not in Crown of Thorns, certainly. Um, that's how, how that happened. Right. And so what about smaller original characters with like really minor roles? Uh, do you remember creating them? I'm thinking, for example, of um, Anat or, or even Rashid. Do you remember when you decided, yeah, I'm going to include this this random person? Well, Anat appears in a flashback. Obviously, it's the Sodom and Gomorrah flashback. Uh, I created her on the spot for that. I knew mm -hmm. there'd be a human that I'd be, but again, it was down to function. It's like Crowley's in, um, I was always fascinated with his fixation in the novel on that, you know, that lemongrass drink that he remembered, you know, pre-fall of Sodom and Gomorrah in a tavern. So I was like, I'm going to put him in the tavern. I'm going to see what happened there. Oh, there's probably a bartender. All right, we're going to have a bartender. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and the, the, you know, just kind of on the spot, that chain of association. But with Rashid, Rashid is the more interesting case study, I think. Writing... Um, What is the title of that one? I am forgetting the title of the one where Rashid shows up for the first time, but it's that little string of outsider point of view. Yeah, um, there are like four. So there are. So yeah. he's there, essentially, he's their regular server at the Ritz. I'm realizing yeah. that because we, because in canon, so much of Crowley and Aziraphale, the time they spend together is when they're eating together somewhere, whether it's in the British Museum cafeteria, the, you know, they meet up there a lot comparing notes on how their agents are doing with Warlock. Mm -hmm. um, they, we see them at the Ritz, we see them, just all these contexts of food and drinks. So I think by nature, a lot of the OCs that are humans that interact with end up being the people who are bringing them their food and drink. So Rashid is their regular, I came up with Rashid as their regular server at the Ritz. I needed him to be somebody who, and again, I created him for the purpose of this little string of out, outsider points of view. Uh, but he, a lot more had to go into him than Anat because, you know, Anat's appearance is very brief, but Rashid's first appearance is an entire scene in his perspective, thinking about mm -hmm. these two very unusual gentlemen that have been coming for years and years and whose appearance, you know, they may dress differently from decade to decade, but in his long lifetime, they never really change. And he knows them best 
by their orders. Um, and he's never really intervened heavily in their conversation, but he listens and he watches. And it was also important to me that he be an immigrant to Britain. Um, I definitely wanted him to be coming from elsewhere. I wanted him to be a person of color. Those things were very in clear, very clear to me, very insistent. Uh, and then eventually when when Ronnie, the community theater director, um, came up, I thought about Rashid's cultural background and realized that they had both come from the same place, Pakistan. And I thought, oh my goodness, what if, okay, do I have a chance here? If I make them related in some way, whether it's their cousins or by marriage, and I was very excited when I right. realized this, so I was able to kind of reach back, examine Rashid again, realize that he and Rani were very close in age and had probably been in Britain for, a, you know, for about the same amount of time, which is, you know, a long part of their life. And so then I figured out how I wanted them to be related, how I could sort of maybe start to drop just a couple of early hints that when Rani is talking about a particular relative, She's actually talking about Rashid, and now all I have to do is bide my time on when to reveal this, like really in earnest reveal it. So yeah. uh, Rashid was never meant as such to be, to appear past the, the outsider points of view piece, but when Rani became a character, I remembered him and I recognized a neat opportunity and it worked out. I think from my perspective as the writer, it worked out. And mm -hmm. a lot of readers were very happy to see him again. And so I'm glad that I did it. Yeah, no, I, I relate because when I was thinking of this question, like what kind of examples could I give you that like really resonated with me and like just made me go like, mm -hmm. oh, this is really cool. Rashid was immediately one of the first, him and Inat really, because they are mentioned very little, but they 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 exist in the characters' memories somehow mm -hmm. throughout the story. So it was it was very interesting to me how even being minor original characters, they still have such a presence. People really love people do really love Anat, and it makes me regret that I never did more with her. But Willoughby, <laughs> yeah. So on a related note to what you just. Uh, told us about Uriel uh, being one of your favorite characters. Uh, one of our listeners, Tired But Still Kicking, asked you on Instagram, who was your favorite character to write in Crown of Thorns? About favorite characters in this series, it's hard for me um, to single out one because I, I feel so much love for all of them that I would feel almost like I was um, engaging in some kind of unfair favoritism, but mm -hmm. I will say, aside from Aziraphale and Crowley, who obviously uh, long-term are my favorites, otherwise I wouldn't have been writing about them for 15 years straight. Um, the characters that I didn't get to see as much of relative to the rest, like Ronnie and Rashid, um, Madame Tracy, those three are probably uh, the favorites that are not any of the the most appearing um, main cast, I guess you could say. 
um, anytime I needed to have them on screen, on page, um, they were just a joy to have there. They're, those are particular characters that I never felt. Um, there are some characters when um, writing them, they are a little stressful because, um, you know, for one reason or another, their dialogue is especially tricky or they, um, they're prone to high drama. But uh, Rani, Rashid, and Madame Tracy are just like they're a delight. Anytime I had a scene with them, um, I was just very happy to be writing it and it never felt like pulling teeth, then, you know, I guess it's that absence makes the hard girl fonder um, principle. Um, mm-hmm. So I think those, I think those three would, would definitely take that title. Fair enough. I guess, and I, I should ask, do you think that you edit more the dialogue for your original characters than you would edit the canon characters? Do those come easier to you or is it just equal for them? That's an excellent question. I tweak dialogue a lot at a baseline, and I don't think I do it more for the canon characters or the original characters. Um, honestly, it's it's very situational. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess if I'm having what I would consider an off day where I feel like I can't hear them well, you know, I, I'm prone to a lot more fussing with the dialogue until it feels right mm-hmm. um there are some of the canon characters that i'm aware come easier for me than others and there are some of my original characters that i'm aware come easier for me than others so it's a pretty even mix i think right fair enough and what you say you edit more the dialogue or the description because your writing is very descriptive at times I think I edit dialogue more, actually. Um, I'm very particular about the way that characters sound, you know, to my inner ear, and then uh, capturing that on the page mm-hmm. by extension is very important. And this is another one of those questions that I can apply to my writing across the board, really. Um, I can be reading something years later you know from when I originally wrote it on AO3 and if I hit a line of dialogue where suddenly I realize wait this doesn't sound right I'll go in and tweak one word here there and you know and I'm probably Hmm. the only person who will ever notice that but it makes a difference to me right so you edit things you have already posted sometimes I do yeah um that and some actually I'm sorry my cat's making a lot of noise um, (laughs) in the other room Uh, I think sometimes when I tell people that it raises eyebrows and then they're like oh do you mean like there's some something I have to go back and find and I'm like if you care about a single word then maybe but um it's there have actually been it's rarer when I go in there have been a few times actually um where there have been things that I wrote years ago that um you know i'll be reading a scene and i'll think hmm you know what this um could use maybe another hundred words here or uh, um you know however many um and i'll do it and it's very sneaky a lot of the time i just i i rarely will tell people i do this um unless it's relevant and then there are pieces like cot where i feel like i haven't tweaked anything in a really long time i finally will get to a point with a piece of work 
where I'll be rereading it and I'll think, yep, I can just kind of stand down uh, and enjoy reading this rather than have the editor part of my brain turned on. <laughs> right, right. Well, very sneaky. So it's direct for anyone who wants to go and reread. Um, yeah, I guess in a way it is. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Um, so, so clearly you're very detailed about many things in your universe from, from physical descriptions of the original characters to like the distribution of the cottage. We have actually like in the spreadsheet you have given us in our artists descriptions of how you thought things would be in the cottage. Um, where do you where do you draw inspiration from to get all of this? Oh my. I when it comes to interior spaces, if they're public places like cafes, bars, museums, churches, uh, any kind of public structure, I'm usually thinking of a real one that I've been in, or it is in fact a real place like the British Museum or like this particular, you know, tiny medieval church that I've seen or, you know, something like that. But when it comes to houses and living spaces, and this is like a hard and fast rule, like across, I'm talking now about all of my fandom writing. In fact, all of my writing that I do full stop, when it's residential spaces, you know, whether it's apartments, flats, um, or houses, um, I try to think of places that I have seen, but I don't necessarily make it literally that place. I kind of play around with the architecture a little and maybe like mix up two different plate features from two different places that I saw. Uh, my family moved a lot when I was growing up uh, around like, I mean, I grew up in Western Pennsylvania And my family just moved constantly around this half of this one state. And it's a really big state. And that involved looking at a lot of properties. And I was, you know, old enough by the, you know, by the time my parents started moving us around a lot where I was usually with them. Or in fact, after a couple of years of this, actually actively liked being with my parents when they would look at, you know, our potential new places to live. And my parents, are they you know there are people who like to have all of their options and so they would look at a lot a lot of places every time we would move and for for me between about the age of I think you know two or three years old and uh, until I left for college we I think I counted it we lived in eight or nine different houses maybe ten And each time we were moving, we were looking, I saw the interiors of a lot of properties, like a lot of properties. And of course, in adulthood, moving like off to college, living off campus quite a lot and moving over to the UK for the first of my graduate degrees. I just, between the US and the UK, I feel like I've seen so many interior spaces of properties and gotten this really good memory bank of um of places that I can draw on or work from. And the the cottage in particular, we're looping back again to my British friend's um, mom. Her family lives like not too far from Stratford-upon-Avon. And it's very idyllic there, very picturesque. It's not coastal, but the feel of it 
was what mattered. They on their property have this little guest cottage that they rent out to people. And so the couple times that I stayed with her family, I was actually in the little uh, the little cottage on their property. So I was thinking partly of that place, uh, partly of some exteriors that I had seen for actual uh, Cornwall and South Downs cottages online on property listings. I don't just look up, you know, like on Pinterest, random photos, or like I actually have to get into the real estate listings and websites because it will give me both pictures of exteriors and pictures of interiors and sometimes if I'm lucky floor plans uh and so there was there was that element there was like my friend's mom's place little place that she owned there was me looking at property listings for Cornwall and the South Downs and then there was still is actually um this tiny little hunting camp in western Pennsylvania where I grew up that my dad's parents, actually my dad's father and some of his, you know, hunting and fishing buddies built it from the ground up. In fact, my grandparents' house is like this as well. It was built by my grandfather. And I spent a lot of my childhood between this little tiny hunting camp in the middle of nowhere and my grandparents' house. And so, between all of these weird influences, that's how the cottage came to exist. There are elements of it that are actually, if I think about it, kind of like my grandparents' house in interior layout, the basic idea, uh, but you know, the, the, the feel of decor and the exterior, I keep thinking a lot about my friend's little parents' little cottage. And then like, as far as the gardening aspect, you know, uh, looking at a lot of those property listings and seeing where people put their gardens in relation. And then with the property listings, I was also looking extensively at what are possibilities for the ones that the back of a cottage or the back of the house kind of faces the, the ocean. And if you like walk a little distance here, there you are, you're on a, a stretch of beach. Uh, that's a very complicated answer for such a tiny, simple, really self-contained place but a lot went into it. Yeah. No, it sounds like it. Do you, like, I, I imagine you spent, like, hours researching all of this because it just sounds, like, really exhaustive. It, yes, I did spend a lot of time. Uh, but also once, once I got a feel for the space as a real place in my, in my mind, you know, after a while I stopped looking at things, uh, we we're talking like uh, the last maybe few details that I was even using any kind of reference for was like just in the the early stretch of maybe the first 10 stories or so. But after that, the space, I got so used to maneuvering myself in it mentally for purpose of, purposes of setting scenes and knowing who's sitting where and who's picking what up and like what you know, what yeah. extra chairs can be made to appear out of nowhere and they're hoping nobody's going to notice they created a few extra <laughs> chairs or, you know, just things like that. Um, so, yeah, past a certain point, it was, it's so solid to me. I, it's, I wish I could have, I wish I could have that place. I wish I could build that place. It's extremely real to me. So, um, going on a bit more on, all of the original things that you have created for this universe. 
I was actually talking to Ri, our head editor, and she was telling me that how a lot of fics currently in fandom evolve solely around the canon characters, but how with Crown of Thorns there are so many um, original characters that it makes it feel less less good omens and more Crown of Thorns containing good omen characters. Like it's mm-hmm. like it's sort of a spin-off. And so she she told me to ask, how would you determine or how do you determine what is in character for each original character as mm. opposed to having a point of reference, such as with, with Crowley of Aziraphale, who already have the book to base your your story upon? Right. That's an excellent question. And I would say that for the canon characters I'm working with, I am always doing my absolute best to make sure that they are acting and reacting in ways that I can extrapolate from their canon characterization and that I can, if they have to grow and change, which they do, I'm constantly cross-referencing in my mind. Okay, what is my textual evidence that I can cite when Crowley says this or when Aziraphale makes this decision or you know, Shadwell and Tracy uh, do XYZ or Newton and Ethema. Mm-hmm. But with my original characters, and they're at this point just a significant number of them, mm-hmm. that's internal to me, right? And my sense of the OC that I built. And really just the, the atmosphere is what happens when I have these characters that I have a strong sense of who they are from the novel interact with these OCs who I have a strong sense of who they are based on just the way I built them uh, to function and behave. Mm -hmm. And you do get a lot of, at the intersection of those two things, you really do get the atmosphere and the universe that is very particularly COT because you, I'm, you know, running constantly these models of, novel characters and the way that they're evolving and changing as I'm working with them in this context or interacting with characters that I build that start out one way but that also grow and change so mm-hmm. that that's probably not a clear answer but it's for it's a it's a complicated it's a complicated process for me and it's a complicated it's like I feel like every time I have an interaction in any fandom, anytime I have an interaction between a canon character and one of my original characters, it's like, let's see what happens. It's there's the, you know, in the earlier stages of doing it, you really have to get a feel for how, how those personalities uh, interact, what happens when they collide. And sometimes they get along very well. And sometimes there are clashes and sometimes it takes a long time for them to settle into each other. Right. But I think it's I think it's like that with I don't know, any any piece of creative work where you have fictional characters, whether they're the ones you pulled from canon or the ones you created yourself, you're always sort of asking yourself, well, let's see how this goes. You know, I hope it's gonna work. And if it doesn't work, maybe that's gonna become integral to the fabric of the plot is that these characters are perpetually at odds. The kind of not working that's that's terrible is just when something falls flat. You try it out and either you are looking at the finished product or a reader is looking at the finished product thinking, that just doesn't engage me. That doesn't work the way I thought it was gonna work. Maybe, maybe that, you know, maybe I'm not interested. Maybe that original character has to be redesigned. Right. Uh, yeah. And 
I well, I don't know if you'll agree, but for me, when I'm writing characters in general, when I'm trying to get to know a new character, sometimes I will go back to read something I've written before I knew this character as well as I do now, and I feel like maybe I should rewrite it because that's not no longer consistent with the way I now know my character to behave like. Do you feel that any character, any of your original characters in Crown of Thorns has evolved to the point that when you first meet them, they are not quite there? Uh, let me see if I understood the question. So my original characters, the way they are by the end of the story, if I look back at their first appearance, do I feel like they're not there in their first appearance, or I feel like they're no longer there by the time I get to their last or their most recent? No, at the beginning, sort of, if you get to know them so well that when you go back to read what you first wrote about them, you sort of feel like you didn't know them well enough to write them. I don't know if that happens to other people. I'm just asking because I know this happens to me. So with COT, I never actually felt that. When I look back at the early appearances, I can say... I felt like I knew that character well enough to write them in the first place. I have to mm -hmm. feel at least comfortable enough, like I have a sense of them, who they are at that, that moment in time as a person. But there have been, thinking about my stories in other fandoms, there, there's definitely a couple of times where I can see the early appearance of a character and recognize that I only knew half the truth about them, <laughs> kind of, in a way. And yeah. for me, actually, when that happens, I don't consider it a bad thing. I consider it that, okay, if I started writing this character before I got to know them good enough, or i.e. before I got to fleshing out everything about them that maybe I should have at the start, I yeah. just say, well, I, I'm usually fortunate enough that when I'm writing about OCs, Rashid, let's say Rashid is, a, is, an, is a, an exception to this rule where his first appearance, I'm writing it in his point of view, like out of the gate. That doesn't mm -hmm. usually happen. When I build OCs in my fan work, I want to say 80 to 90% of the time when they first appear, I'm writing in the point of view of one of the canon characters. Right. And so for me, it's like the canon character doesn't know them well enough yet. So if I didn't know them well enough yet, that's okay. Because mm -hmm. I'm going to be getting to know them usually through the lens of the canon character that's in the foreground. So I have um, a margin for error a lot of the time, if you could call it that. But yeah. I've never actually had to... So an original character that I didn't outright scrap, which ha which when that happens, they never see light of day posted <laughs> for people to see. But the, the characters that actually make it to being posted and showing up for the first time, um, I really don't, I've never like had one that I've had to completely scrap or like retcon or make go away. Uh, I try to at least have some controls in place so that, if something just doesn't work at all that I can, you know, eradicate or plan, you know, just kind of rearrange whatever I plotted to not include an original character that I thought was going to be there. Right. No, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. If you're not writing from their point of view, 
it's probably a lot easier. You have a lot more leeway to to not fully give all the reasons and stuff. So yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and so have your have your original characters ever tried to become the center of the Crown of Thorns universe at some point? Because I know they are very integral to the story. Have you ever felt that they were taking up too much screen? No, I never did. Um, and now you have me thinking about. Uh, you're very patient with me for the fact that I'm I'm talking about a lot a lot of my general writing processes, like not <laughs> just in Good Omens fandom, but with Bot. Um, there are certainly stories that feature like where the plot points have a lot to do with OCs and what's happening in the lives of OCs but when I work with ensemble cast which is a lot of the time it's a persistent preference of mine a persistent thing with me I don't feel like they ever tried to hijack it I always have been able to keep in mind that this started out being about Aziraphale and Crowley and their world expanding as it would have to. Uh, you, you like settle down to live a more, a, a life that's more human even the one than the one you were living before and you're, it's gonna happen. You're going to, you're going to live. You're going to meet people and you're going to love some of them and hate some of them. And you're going to have to face what happens when one of them dies for the first time or grows seriously ill or... Uh, so with Ensemble Cast, I will always have my canon characters. I, I do try my very best not to forget who the original focus was and to an extent, you know, really has to remain. But if anybody came close to, in fact, no, I would argue she is, you know, on equal footing with Carolina Zerophale. Uh, Pippa is so important to the narratives because she's there with them at the start when they move to this place mm -hmm. in a way. And in fact, the original ending, I mean, I think I might have, I don't know if I talked about this the first time. My short-term memory is not great these days. Um, it's the way that I was thinking it might end was, and my, my reasoning for this, she's there from curtain up in The Walls of Wayne Scott and the Mouse, which that's the second story, but it's the first long story. And she's there right at the start. I thought, logically speaking, this story ends when she does, when she's no longer in the world. And so I was thinking that, and you know, she is older, even at the start. I was thinking that this would have to be a kind of situation where the last story by default will have to be the story of Aziraphale and Crowley and the others having to deal with what happens when she dies. Now, right. things changed drastically when I realized it was more narratively expedient um, for a different character to die at some point in the narrative. And it was not one of those deaths that was done for shock value. It was established that this character was an older character as well. 
and was not in the necessarily in the best of health or you know you didn't see a lot of this character there they, they were always just kind of a little bit out of your field of vision off to the side mm-hmm. uh and so i thought okay here's what happens when a death hits this little community and it's not pippa and i am not somebody who plays death cheaply in my work in fact i get i get very almost when I talk about this that I dislike deaths that are that are played just for the shock value um, if I have a death happen in one of my stories it's usually going to it's going to have number one very serious repercussions and it's going to affect everybody who's in any way touched by that person but in this specific instance, what having this death happen when it happens in the narrative means is that Pippa's death was no longer going to be something that was going to have that kind of narrative impact because we already got to see it. We already got mm-hmm. to see what happens when these characters have to deal with someone they know dying, not necessarily Pippa, but someone they know. So from mm-hmm. there, I realized, well, ending this series with, you know, Pippa dying, I'm fond of her. Probably readers, many of them by the end, are going to be very fond of her. I realized it wouldn't be a good thing from that standpoint to think about this ending with her death, you know, just from natural. And I'm talking about like a natural death at the end of a life well lived. Mm-hmm. So I had to recalibrate. You know, we see this little, very close-knit group of people, this little community, this little extended family, in a way, reacting to this death pretty early on relatively in the series, like maybe somewhere around the midpoint. There was still a long way to go. Yeah. So those those two factors made me reevaluate, and I'm really glad that I did, because it made for a stronger ending. You know, it made for a finish where... Everyone who is still standing, which is most of them, you know, like all but one, right? Um, And even the one that's no longer standing, again, was always very much off screen or had like one line here or they would be talked about by the other people. Uh, At the end, they're all standing. Um, They had a near thing where they maybe could have lost somebody else. You know, it was like a precarious I'm trying to talk about some of these things without spoiling a whole lot for people who are listening who might want to read. Uh, but it made it made for a better ending. Uh, you know, and anytime I can end something with all of my players or 99% of my players still standing, that's good. In my in my view, that's a really good thing. Awesome. And let's use the moment that we're talking about the ending of the story to ask you a final few questions that I have, which are okay. hopefully a little more lighthearted than uh, deciding whether or not to kill characters. Um, these are just little, little funny questions that popped into my head as I thought of the theme for this interview, which is the the intro of Good Omens about how the Earth is a Libra. And so let's start with something really random. Do you have a favorite dinosaur? I have a following a big one. For um, the aquatic prehistoric critters, um, I'm thinking yeah. the branch of the, the family is technically Nothosauria, like the, the plesiosaurs and ichthyosaurs, sea yeah. monsters. I, I have an interest in sea monsters and so uh, aquatic dinosaurs, although that class is not tech- 
technically dinosaurs existing at the same I don't know I'm not okay I took like a couple I took a couple of paleontology classes as an undergrad that is how nerdy I was about dinosaurs as a kid that it has bled uh into my adult life but yes I love if I have to pick one prehistoric critter that I love so much it's plesiosaurs they're they're great okay of course a practical joke that paleontologists haven't gotten yet but mm-hmm. um let's move on so we know that chronothors is also a libra but do you remember what time of day was it that you sat down and decided that yes chronothors was going to be born it was evening on october 1st 2005 evening. so i'm no let me let me i'm backtracking this because I, you know, I had just like flown into Heathrow that morning, taken a long trade ride up to York, gotten settled in, passed out for several hours, checked my, you know, all of my online presences, which at that point in time went, meant mostly just email and live journal, mm-hmm. um, was reminded that the friend had like given me that little thick prompt of like, what would this look like if it was the last time? And I thought, well, This is my first day living in Britain for the next however many years. It seems, it feels right to write something about them just as I've landed here. So I'm going to fill this thick prompt. And it must, because of the way like darkness in the autumn falls so much earlier in the UK than like for me, my perspective of where I was living before. So I think it must have been about... 7 to 7.30 p.m. window. Um, just from what I remember of um, like how much the light had already faded and that it had struck me that back at home I would still have more daylight at that time yeah. of day. So let's call it 7 p.m. on October 1st, 2005, which my astrology, I'm never good off the cuff <laughs> with that. I think that also falls in the Libra. Um, yes. And if you had to think of a scientific theory that you think God would find really funny, what would it be? Hmm. I'm trying to think of my my own conception of, of God or higher power from a, a Jewish standpoint. Mm-hmm. I feel like God finds almost everything funny. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I... And maybe that's just myself talking too, that as a survival mechanism, I have tried, tried very hard to start to find everything funny, especially like in the last, I guess, almost approaching 10 years now. But I feel, yeah, just all of existence. I mean, how could you not? You know, you just set up, set up this little scenario and it evolves and ticks along in ways that you never expected and uh, a lot of what happens is heartbreaking and terrible but direct intervention i uh, one thing i will say is that i when i conceive of a higher power i don't always think of it as being a highly interventionist one necessarily uh so i don't know if you if you don't learn to to look at everything that happens and maybe this is just me now bringing it down to the perspective of a human life 
there's so much out of your control. And I think, yes, even for a creator, there would be so much out of their control. I mean, that happens for us as creators, right? You let something loose in the world and good luck predicting what's (laughs) going to happen to it. Right. So um, if I look at God or as the higher power in the universe as a storyteller, which I do almost first and foremost, you don't have control over what's going to happen to your creations. And a lot of it's going to be really terrible, but you'll have to find a way of finding the humor in it. I would hope. Awesome. And so for a final question, we have talked during this interview about how, about the, the beginning of, well, the beginning of the universe but also at the beginning of Crown of Thorns as a universe. So what do you think the story and starting to write it sparked for you? What began in your life when you began the story? Um, I had already been independent for about five years at that point because I was starting to write it right as I graduated from my undergraduate degree and was starting the first of my postgraduate ones and in a whole other country, no less. So, you know, the five years that I spent living independently during college, I did five years of undergrad instead of four because I just changed my major and wanted to do so many different things. Uh, It felt more real as the start of my independent adult life going to the UK and doing this than it felt during my undergrad years. So you might say that this started on the first day of the rest of my adult independent, you know, existing just as myself and having to figure out who my family was going to be, the people that I was going to meet and add on and and it really, uh, actually, yeah, that's what that's what it was. Awesome. Well, here's to the rest of that adult independent life. Thank you. Here's to yours too. I hope it. Um, I hope it is. You know, I hope you are having a good one, and that you will continue to have a good one. Thank you, and thank you so much for talking with us. AJ, um, tell us where can people find you online. Thanks again, Lena. You're such a good interviewer. Um, You can find me online um, on AO3, which is Archive of Our Own, and on Tubler. I am Iris Blufik. That is I-R-I-S-B-L-E-U-F-I-C. On Twitter, you can find me um, under my my real name, which is um, at A-J-O-D-A-S-S-O at A-J-O-D-A-S-S-O. Uh, most other places, I mean, I don't, I have Instagram. I'm at AGODF on Instagram as well. I don't mm-hmm. necessarily have a website, you know, aside from my Twitter and my Instagram and my AO3 and my um, Tumblr. So maybe I should change that. I probably should change that. Um, you know, I edit for some publications out there and you're going to find my original writing everywhere. If you put my name into Google, just like wind it up and let it go. You're going to find a lot of stuff. All right. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a good one. 
Oh, this was all we had for today. Next time, we'll be talking to Care Avon, the voice of Pippa, so keep your ears ready for that.